0: Thank you
1: This is John. This is Blix.
0: This is Trav. And this is Jay.
2: Welcome to the TriTac podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we explore the strange worlds of the TriTac games, which include Fringeworthy and another game. But in this particular case, we're talking about Fringeworthy and the Alien Core. Now the Alien Corps is the organization that was created after the IDET explorers went out to alien worlds on the fringe paths and found out that they didn't always have humans on them they had people but they weren't humans and some of these explorers just found out that the Fringeworthy on these worlds were more than willing to join IDET in their explorations, but there was going to be some problems because they weren't human. So, Blix, what kind of aliens or alien explorers does the game uh, initially provide you with? You have the Blizzness. You have Uh, Slargs,
3: Kegax. You have... um the Mixie? To Zeal. And I'm, I'm, we're just talking about the, the non human ones? Right. Right, okay. Because, well, I mean, when I say non human, I mean like, because you have the Victorians, but they're humanoid, human ish. Uh, the Norlanders, old men.
2: All right, well, so you're saying, Blix, that when the alien core isn't just people who are physically alien, you're, right. you're saying that they're also any non Earth prime culture thats that they've come into contact and who want to join IDET as far as a team member.
3: That's correct, yes. If you don't come from Earth Prime, you would be in the alien core if you were working with IDET.
2: Okay. But so we have the Tazeel and we, we've got the uh, Demixie. Now, the Slargs and the uh, Kegaks, they came later, right? Yes.
0: As late as we could. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, and the main reason, which we've covered in other shows, was because they have a lot of information about the uh, fringe paths and about the history of the Tamelloran Commonwealth and the and the Meller War. So, unless you want to to pretty much spill the beans about the Meller early on in your campaign you're not going to want to include the Slargs and, and the Kegaks, but that's really only the main reason. They're no less or more alien than any other race that might be out there.
3: I thought the reason
4: you didn't want to include us is because we were desperate cowards.
2: No, it's because the Kegaks wanted to wait as long as possible before people found out they tasted like chicken.
4: That's right. <laughs> <coughs>
2: All right, so here you have these people who come in a variety of forums, and they're joining with IDET. What might be some problems about them joining in with an IDET team?
0: Oh, I don't know. Maybe in the fact that the Demixi being six-foot-tall spiders might freak out a lot of Earth Prime explorers. It
2: freaks me out!
0: You got seven-foot-tall lizard men with very sharp blades. You've got talking elephants with lisps.
2: Who are also telepathic.
0: You're going to have some people, just because you're fringe-worthy and you have this unique energy signature that allows you to access this fringe technology, (laughs) xenophobia is still going to be there. You're just going to have people who are going, um, no, I'm not working with that.
4: Racist. It's just a conspiracy
0: to keep the little green man down.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Then you got the, like, the Brupians, and it's like, there's a walking tree. Great.
0: The alien core was made to help integrate these other, often very... Non-human-like races into IDETs that allow them to use their unique natural abilities to help augment a human team. What I gather about the Zeal—they're they're fast and strong, and they got the the scale, which almost acts like armor. So, yeah, who wouldn't want somebody like that on their team?
2: And they have a strong Me? sense of honor, which allows them to work well under someone else's authority.
3: Yes. Just so long as we don't mention that
4: whole chicken thing, okay?
2: Yeah, right. No problem. Um, and the Demixi,
0: from what I understand, they are, are very good engineers. Mm-hmm. That could come in handy if you're an IDET team and you're building something to help a village out. And boy, on Halloween, they just scare the crap out of people. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: And um, they work really well on scaffolding and, and those kinds of big <laughs> building-type structures.
0: It's harder to take it down after they're done, but what the hey? <laughs> Let's see, the, the Blizzness, I, I believe their main thing is that they're excellent storytellers, they have a rich oral history, they right. had to actually learn a written language from
2: Unita. Right. They exude an empathetic sense that causes people around them to take an immediate liking to them.
4: Oh yeah, life's fair.
2: Yeah, the, the problem is they're totally nonviolent, pacifistic, which means that they're in a world in which somebody's being treated poorly and you want to take action the the most they're going to bring into the game is harsh words
0: well the thing is though the blizzness would make fantastic diplomats
1: but they're also 100 percent fringeworthy every blizzness is fringe worthy why no
0: so yeah all these unique abilities that these alien races would have as i said i would i'd want a seven foot tall lizard man backing me in a fight So the the alien core had to be made in order to incorporate all these races into teams that, until that point, were just all Earth primers.
4: Wouldn't it be kind of a box for all the uh, strays that followed all the exploration teams? Look, it's a giant lizard man. Can we keep him? Oh, I suppose.
0: The alien core would also be involving first contact and exploration because, okay, we have to deal with the beings of this world. Based on what this one to zeal told us, how are we going to, you know, integrate ourselves into their culture to allow for trade and yeah, yeah. Uh, diplomatic relations?
3: You know what I was thinking. A lot of these alien corps, especially the the odd, like the like the Blizznes and the um, the Demixi, they play good support roles. For example, let's say you, you're going to a, an uninhabited world where you're not going to run into uh, people who
4: get scared to death by a six foot
3: spider <laughs> right right who aren't terrified to death by a six foot spider maybe maybe it's like we talked about the dinosaur world maybe you bring in a whole team of uh of your Demixie to build shelters and stuff uh, quickly for the team look 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 we've
4: got the whole chicken thing covered this is the second duck bill to die of a heart attack this week
3: <laughs> <laughs> but, um you know they could rush in build shelters quickly uh, and, and while they're building the shelters, they're covered by the Tazeel. And then once that team moves out, then you have your team of, uh, of your scientists and all
0: come in.
4: There's no reason why the Demixi or the uh, couldn't be scientists,
0: I mean. It seems that the Demixi are predisposed with they have advanced construction techniques. Ah. Yeah, you could have a, D- a Demixi diplomat.
2: They suffer from the same thing that all the other races, with a few exceptions, in that they are not universally fringeworthy. So you're pretty much stuck with whatever skills the Demixi had in its culture before it came over. You could make him into a scientist or into a diplomat, but he wouldn't, Probably start that way.
4: Here's our Demixi science officer. Oh, what's your specialty? Medieval literature.
2: <laughs> 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 On the upside, I'm really great at
3: knitting.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Racist, keeping me making bed down. Right. So the Demixi are actually 1990. So they're only like 10 years, 20 years out of date technology-wise. While the bliznes are Bronze Age, and the Zeal, well, they're basically they're Iron Age. You take a child uh, to Zio home and raise him and take him to school and teach him everything, he'll probably, you know, do okay.
4: He's going to be as neurotic as heck from all the children looking at him and going, uh, lizard? That's true. Well, I,
0: that, that would be something else of the alien core that would do. They would have, and they probably keep these aliens in Hatsumi base to train them.
4: I think you'd want to get a more uh, hospitable area, maybe an uninhabited alt where you could, like, set up. Places where they don't freeze solid. A tezeel a on a stick doesn't sound like any fun to me.
3: Are the tezeel cold blooded? Yes, I believe they are. I can see it now. I'm not going
2: there. No, I'm not working there. <laughs>
4: right. I can't work under these conditions. Oh my god, it's tezeel to Madonna.
2: <laughs> right, well, remember, cold blooded simply means that they can't maintain their own internal body temperature. It does not mean that they can't live inside of other in other environments. It just you're just gonna have to provide an adequate amount of heating or or, or insulation, you know, or m- enough muscular activity to provide the heat that they need in order to keep their bodies going properly. I was gonna
3: say just think you're the you're the t-zeal. It's like you want me to go somewhere where if the heating system should fail, I could freeze to death in a matter of moments. No, yeah, I'm not, no, not going to work there, no. Well,
2: first of all, that's not what we're talking about. You would have to be in a situation where he wouldn't be able to stand still in such yeah. an environment and without freezing to death. He'd have to keep active. He'd have to do push-ups and sit-ups and just keep moving around.
4: If they lost the life support, everybody would freeze to death, which is why we're going to go down the, down the fringe path to that alt in the uninhabited place where the door, where the portal opens out onto Cancun.
2: Mm. Right. Well, but uh, even so, the the one uh, where they have the uh, uh, the hunting lodge that would be a perfectly fine place for people mm-hmm. to get together and just do general training. Let's talk for a second about what the Alien Corps brings as far as a campaign is concerned.
4: Non-human characters, non-human points of view, right? Excuses for people to play crazy things like Kegak.
2: right? But it also means you're gonna dr- it's gonna drive
1: your adventures as you said, to worlds in which they're not all humans. Maybe you, you run into a Demixie who wants to find a Demixie alternate or, or a Demixie prime.
4: Now that would be funny. Yeah. Going to a Demixie alt and like turning up at, during their uh, summer of love and having all the Demixie yelling over the PA, don't take the brown acid, people are seeing monkeys. <laughs>
3: Or the Summer of Love and Demixie. Oh, my God. Egg sacks everywhere.
4: (laughs) Whatever, yeah. Yeah. No, I I had to stop drinking when that happened to me.
2: Right. (laughs) Our regular Earth Prime IDET type explorers, the way what most people play in their campaigns, where they're all humans. They go to a world in which the predominant race is non-human. They end up being the strange aliens Mm -hmm. coming from nowhere. There are the greys coming in to (laughs) our Earth. So you're already going to be considered an alien. You might as well use really alien aliens to do the exploration because there's no downside there.
4: Come out in a uh, demixy 1950s and watch a lady and all her scuttling little children run screaming down the street. Pretty soon you got tanks and jet airplanes all over the place looking for the aliens. Right. It's hilarity will ensue.
2: Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't always have to necessarily end in tears.
4: No. I think the idea of a giant, of a six-foot-tall spider screaming and panicking at the sight of a person is an interesting juxtaposition.
2: Yeah, jumping up in a
0: chair. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ah! Monkey! That's one of the big problems you have in any exploration where you go to a world which is, let's say, non-sophisticated, mm-hmm. and they're not used to uh, intelligent species that are not of their own ilk. Mm-hmm. You could just bring a regular human group through there and... Okay, now we're the fish out of water, even more than we usually are. But I think that this is a golden opportunity to bring in people from the alien core because since they're already alien, they're used to dealing with this. They actually should have an advantage with dealing with non-human beings and their reactions to be able Mm -hmm. to calm them. They might have some lines of action that they do. It's a kind of a psychological turn where you're coming in realizing that Everybody that you run into is going to look at you as if you're an alien. Mm-hmm. Now you're in a world where they're all aliens, so you're already used to that kind of thing. There's not going to be any real culture shock with you coming in. So the alien core would be a big advantage in these mm-hmm. situations because they're already in the right mindset.
4: Once you start mixing in alien characters and alien worlds into it, then you can get into exploring what a cosmopolitan world out on the fringe path looks like. What a world that knows about the portals and has people coming and going and trading and talking, how they're reacting to things. And you're going to be the bumpkins, and that's another kind of a transposition, a fish out of water you, kind of a you thing. You
0: mean something along the lines of like a leftover commonwealth world that had all <laughs> these races.
4: Maybe just a world that rediscovered the fringe paths a couple of hundred years ago and has made, to, made a few new friends since then.
1: Or oh, you run into a, someone's re- reopened one of the trade worlds.
4: Or a world has become its own trade world, you know?
1: or well, like we were saying before, using settings, say, for example,
3: like Star Wars or Star Trek, where they have all kinds of aliens and you're just another alien that they just haven't seen before.
4: The Mixie comes out of the portals, walks down the street, Do not panic, Earth human. Okay? Why would I panic? Really?
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> Blizzards are large. They're all fringe-worthy. So, if you could get good relations with them, and you could get teams of them helping you, you're talking about massive amounts of manpower in a world where you want to set up a camp or a base or something. You know, you could bring in a team of 20 or 30 of these guys.
4: Do we know why the Blizznits are universally fringeworthy? Is there a reason for that?
2: They just have to be one of the races that are. Hmm. It might have something to do with the fact that they're telepathic. That they're... Sci- they pacifistic, too.
1: They're not a threat
4: they pacifistic to animals? If if a a velociraptor said, ooh, lunch, would a blizznitz say, you really shouldn't. I think that's a bad idea. This is not the dinner you
0: were looking for.
2: (laughs) Well, remember, they also exude that that empathetic uh, calming effect. The velociraptor might just say, hmm, I'm not really that hungry right now. Just because they're pacifistic doesn't mean they wouldn't be willing to use a certain amount of force. They might be able to take some netting and stuff like that and wrap up that velociraptor and set it free far away.
4: Some sort of stun gun or some sort of uh, beanbag gun or something—something something non-lethal.
2: Yeah, but on their own world, they—they they were the only, the major species, and and apparently there's nothing dangerous on their world anymore. But but yes, that's a good question. How would you have them react to a world that was inimical to
1: them? And you, know, you remember, this is blizzness from this world. Now, if there's a place where Blizzards are equivalent, or at the equivalent of our technology. They may not be pacifistic, they may not be 100% fringe-worthy, they may be very different pe- very different people. We're talking about the blizznits, that are they're, they come from alt f- plus five plus five. Mm,
4: Nazi bliznets. okay. Sure, yeah. My head just exploded yeah. again.
3: Yeah. They're hunting down the other blizznits for Scrimshaw.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think blizznits have tusks.
4: Well, no, we keep shooting them just to try to make sure.
2: Oh, <laughs> Okay, so we have this organization that was created as a means of buffering the aliens that we were finding and bringing into IDET from the rest of IDET, primarily. Can you
4: imagine how popular they'd be once word got out?
2: I think they would be of great interest as far as going around the world and showing off and and meeting people. I want to see
4: DeMixie appearing on The View. That would be great.
2: <laughs> I think it'd be great, too. <laughs> yeah. Especially since they're all going to be speaking, you know, perfect English. Well, good evening, ladies.
1: <laughs> well, no, remember, they actually created the description. They speak in a Wheezy voice. <laughs>
4: I think it's more funny to have them do the uh, BBC announcer. but
1: Wheezy's
2: more like, you know, asthmatic. Not that way, John. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, oh. yeah,
2: like... <sighs> <sighs> yeah. I went
3: somewhere else. So I was like, oh, George. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or saying nasal. You can do something nasal, too.
0: Well, better okay. than the is they got, they got that lisp going. Hey, we have some flowers here that we brought from the other world if you'd like to the smell them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that is funny.
2: It's all wrapped up in a beautiful bouquet made of my own mucus.
3: <laughs> oh, we let them serve, but it's
2: a don't ask, don't tell
3: policy. Oh no, just don't tell, don't
4: tell. Even if I ask, don't tell.
1: No, oh, but remember, it's, it's, it's a lis- it's a lisping bass voice. So you know they're talking around like this. Hello. Yeah. They,
4: okay. So, 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 so it's a fabulous Darth Vader.
3: oh,
2: God. oh dude, oh, okay.
4: I am your fashion advisor.
2: All right, but they're not just foils for us making fun of, of strange-sounding people.
4: I think the uh the blizznix it, it is the blizznix or the giant no it's the mixy giant spiders right. with a BBC announcer voice is funnier just because it breaks the, the stereotype there.
0: But the, I mean, the alien core, I mean that's something that you're gonna be dealing with is like if you're gonna be playing these alien characters as part of an alien core team, mm. you're gonna want to not turn them into the stereotypes like we've just spent five minutes doing. Sometimes as a player, I like to take a stereotype and then watch it develop
4: and, and break and do different things in situations. But now, at some point, I'm going to have to try to play a, giant, a six-foot spider in the middle of a fringe-worthy game. It's going to be one of my aspirations.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Tezeo are so obviously the sidekick of the Great White Hunter. They're, they're like every classic jungle movie where you've got the native who's taciturn but strong and very loyal, who stands around with a, with a scowl on his face, ready to jump to his master's bidding. That's only gets you just a little ways. Then they become Klingons.
4: Right. Or whoever, uh, uh, what's his name, was from Stargate.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh,
4: Tealc. I like the character, but yeah, there's times when he was uh, a little too standoff to the side. Yeah. And there's times when they broke that, that stereotype with good results. I think the fun part would be taking some of these aliens and adding characteristics to them that you don't expect, doing things with them, why they're playing with the united why they're in the alien core, why they're exploring and what they think, what they hope to get out of it, and how everybody else reacts to them. There's lots of good role-playing potential in there. It sounds like fun.
2: I figure that the main reason they're in the alien core is because the humans pretty much promise them if they stick with them, they won't die as they do their explorations.
3: Let's say you got you got the Dazeel, right? And and normally, you know one of the guys say, hey, why do we bring in the Dazeel for the team? Did you get him because he's a, he's a great hunter or something? No, he's a magnificent cook. That's not out of the ordinary because it's like, even though they are kind of you know primitive, that doesn't mean they can't cook well or... You know, have some job like that. Could have a beautiful singing voice. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah, he's he's fantastic handwriting.
4: That would be important when handwritten notes are going to be one of your important media of transmission of information.
3: It could be something so simple in that it's like uh, he's a, he's a fantastic artist. We use him, and he and he's really really quick. You know, he can capture a scene quickly. Has a really good memory. We have some kind of encounter with some creature, and uh, a couple minutes later, after he smashed the thing into a million pieces, he was able to reduplicate the sketch shortly thereafter. Yeah. You know, and he's this big lizard dude who carries around a
0: spear, but that's not why you brought him.
4: You know who this is? This is Tazeel Rembrandt. Right. Uh, pleased to be you.
0: Right. Yeah. Yes, we have the Tazeel and the Demixie and the Blizness. Would the other non-Earth primers be considered part of the alien core just because they're not of Earth prime?
2: Yes, because you have people who come from really different cultures. There's been a lot of discussion on the boards about Pax Romana that firmly believes in the institution of slavery.
4: How do Fringeworthy interact with the rest of Earth Prime? I figure it's at some point uh, late in the uh, early campaign the news is going to be outed, and the fringe where they are going to become celebrities, and everybody's going to be wanting to talk to them.
0: Oh, they're treated like but, rock stars and athletes combined. Because right. they're fringe when they get to do this, they are celebrities now, of the highest order.
4: Now, in my game, I placed different gates in different places so that once they were discovered, they didn't have to fist fight with the Arctic to come and go to the fringe paths. But that would mean that you'd walk out the portal, walk off the base, say, bye, guys, and like hitch a ride, catch a bus, call a taxi, or get on your bicycle. But in this case, we seem to be assuming that people are restricted to Hatsumi base or the fringe paths or a United Nations installation on an alternate world. And I'm thinking, so here's these Pax Romana guys, or here's these Victoriana guys. Once the idea that this is a portal to other worlds is out, is there any good reason to keep people from just walking out a portal, walking across the basin, walking out into the world? Are they going to want to keep a real heavy access control? Like, even if you're harmless, or even if you're a friend we've had for years, you don't get to go outside this gate.
0: Well, at first, obviously, you have this alien core. Fine. One of the things that they're going to want to do is learn about these new alien races, so when they finally do, it's like, well, yeah, we found these races on the world. Okay, they're out there. Are they going to be on Earth Prime anytime soon? Uh, I don't know. Do you think the average Joe America or Joe Germany or whatever is going to want to see a six-foot spider walking around New York or Berlin or Paris or Rome? Actually, I think that would be pretty cool.
1: I would think it would lead to an incident because someone would would, would freak out. Right,
0: exactly. That's another job job of the alien core is to help integrate. alien Corps would come to Earth Prime and be like, Okay, we found this race. Let's do some PR.
4: So part of the job of the alien corps is doing PR and going on The View and going on morning talk shows and talking with people and saying, Look, we found these six-foot giant spiders, but they're really nice guys. Give them a shot.
0: Here's the thing. Remember, the fringe paths were from the get-go found out. So it's not like all of a sudden you're finding out, Well, there's an alien race and we Mm -hmm. found it through these portals. No, the portals, by the time you get these alien races to integrate them into your campaign, The portals are public news. As a matter of fact, they're old hat. Most fringe stories are put on the back page after a couple years.
4: I think when a six-foot spider waves high in the view, that's going to make the front page again.
0: Okay, an Erder or a Norlander or a Romana, they're going to be easy to integrate. You can just throw them in normal clothing or even just keep them in their same uh, cultural fashions and just say, yeah, this is the culture they come from. The alien corps is going to have the big job introducing the non-human-like races. So part of the Alien Corps' job is PR to let people
4: know that these creatures are out there and not to be horrified or surprised if they come around a corner in Manhattan and see a six-foot spider.
0: You're going to be introducing the stuff that these people bring to these worlds, like the Demixie with their construction techniques. Well, you know, if you're going to be using Demixie construction at Earth Prime, it would probably be good if you actually have a Demixie architect or construction person there, which means you're going to have a, to... A foreman. Yeah. Right. You're going to have to get the people used to the idea that, yes, this is a new construction technique. And guess what? This here is the race that made it.
4: Part of the alien corps' job is, is relating to Earth. You could have an entire party of non-humans and have them have adventures on Earth doing PR and wandering around having hilarity ensue for them. Oh, yeah. Book signing. I was an extra-dimensional spider.
0: There was something else we brought up about TAS because they are they're technically a separate and distinct organization with IDET, mm-hmm. who just happens mm-hmm. to be partners. They wouldn't be part of the alien Corps because they are TAS. What is that an acronym for again?
1: Her Majesty's Trans-Etheral uh, Service. Mm-hmm.
4: And so they would have their own alien Corps and their own method for introducing people to their world, as well as introducing the concept of, of Earth Prime and introducing some of the technology from Earth Prime to their world.
1: Initially, it's secret. They basically aren't introducing people to their world. They haven't told anyone.
0: They're not, yeah. The Secret gets out on their world much later. Right. I forgot yeah. about that. Black so, ops type thing, yeah.
1: Which means their teams don't grow as fast. The BlizzNizz would be the easiest to introduce people to because they're just, well, they're big elephants at talk.
4: Yeah, you put them in the parade.
1: They're cute. The, the zeal, Okay. You bring them to Comic-Con. You bring them to a science fiction convention, and they're okay there. You take them to Tiffany's for breakfast. No.
3: You bring a Demixi to Dragon Con, and people are buying him drinks and giving him awards.
4: That's a great costume. That's the best costume I've ever seen. Yes, I made yeah. it myself. I skinned a lizard.
2: Right up to the point where someone realizes that, you know, there isn't any laws that give aliens human rights. Therefore... Since they don't claim that anybody owns them, they're free-range. I can just capture one and sell them to the zoo.
4: Yep. I would think Unita would tend to react pretty harshly to that idea, just because it would tend to really poison the well from the next guy down the fringe paths.
2: Right, but you've already seen the structure of Unita. How long would it take to get through committee? Um, and let's
0: I'm face g- it, do you really uh, think uh, that a Tazeel is going to let himself get captured to be put in the alligator pit? I don't think so.
2: You can take anybody if you get the drop on them.
0: I'm thinking that
4: that might be an adventure for, say, a alien core or a mixed alien core fringeworthy group that's on Prime. Okay, this guy was moving from here to there to try to do some PR, and somebody decided they were going elephant hunting that day, so now we have to get the Bliznets out of the zoo. And it would be kind of an undercover, under-the-table thing, since... The first word of it would be entering the United Nations to get on a piece of paper to get put on an agenda someday. You know, it would be up to the PCs to make up a solution quickly and implement it rather than waiting around for the wheels of bureaucracy to grind ever so slow.
1: Actually, I like the original statement of that. that someone decided to go business hunting. Mm-hmm.
3: Or, or think about the zeal. we got to save Tashari before he becomes a handbag.
4: Or we have to save Tashari before he turns several stupid hunters into handbags.
1: That, too. <laughs>
3: Speaking of that and all alien – all and when I say alien, I mean like the odd aliens, the ones that don't look human. They would make really good rescue teams when you need an assault team to go in because you're going in to rescue, say, a team of IDET that have been captured. You send a bunch of Tezeel and, and uh, Demixie in.
0: Oh, yeah. They tear it up.
3: The guys that are holding them captive, not only are they being surprised that, you know, that this team is coming in to rescue them – But they're god-awful scary.
4: They're being attacked by
3: monsters. Oh, yeah. Sir, we were attacked. Well, why didn't you defend yourself? They were six-foot spiders, sir. Why didn't you defend yourself? I
0: said spiders, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) With the unique abilities and talents and, might I say, powers of these various alien races, Zeal have strength and speed. The Demixi, incredible agility. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Blizzness have strength. Down the line the Slargs with hypersenses, those would just be fascinating additions to not only a fringe-worthy team, but a game, because you are going to have these creatures, these sentient beings that can do things that humans can't. So, how would a Slarg react? Hey, your friend just
4: got captured, we have to go rescue him. Would he say, oh my god, that's totally scary, but he's my friend? Oh,
1: dude, it's too bad. More food for me. Bye.
4: Yeah, that that
0: that's really horrible. Well, let me know how that works out for you.
4: Yeah.
1: Okay,
0: now I know right there Jay just did that just to go, yeah, because John needs incentive for this, for him to do the Slarg one. No, not really. Like I said, he doesn't need incentive, yeah. Yeah. We discussed this. The Slarg still makes a fantastic scout, and when you see the Slarg running, you run in the same direction he's running.
4: Yes, I have a Slarg. If you see me running, try to keep up.
2: You know, there are different roles that these various races could be. Of course, we are being stereotypical when we do that. Definitely the gag could be like the Hannibal character. I love
1: it when a plant explodes and I'm somewhere else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the Zeal would be, of course, the B.A. Baracus type character. The Zbixie could be the Mad Murdoch. And yep. Blizzards are the face. Because they're very good for talking with people, sure. So you yeah. could actually pull off an A-team alien core kind of group using these racial-type stereotypes. I pity the fool. <laughs> We've already seen what happens with the Kegak when a plan comes together. Yeah. So right. don't underestimate them.
0: I was also thinking of, um, oh, what other races could be good in Pangolisk? There's six limbs, sc- scaly anteaters, Yes, but they are sentient. You can play them as a character race if need
2: be. Right, and, but they don't talk. They
0: write notes. Yeah, they do little eep, ar, ar eep, ar, you know, like that. And it's just right. there. There's oh. my voice for you. Yeah. So and they, you, go. you know, they have their senses and digging, and so you know, scouting. They'd be good for scouting too. So be excellent scouts. Yeah. So even they could bring something to the table.
4: Perimeter breach. Perimeter breach. They run up. There's the creature. What in the hell is this? And how did they get under the fence? I don't know. Kick it back out.
0: The alien core, they would obviously learn how to tap into these resources that these races all have and be forming these multiracial teams to go in and do specific missions. Like the cyberpunk concept of the fixer. Blix would know this. Mm-hmm. The person yeah. that gets the people together to do certain jobs. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they would pick. Okay, we need a Demixie to do this. We need a Blizznus to do this. We need a Slark to do this. Get them together. Send them to this world. We have a problem. I thought the
4: fixer was kind of the broker. He he connected the jobs with the teams.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. But they call. I've also heard it being called a fixer.
3: If you're an experienced role player and you're comfortable with playing more than one character, uh, there'd be a prime time to bring in one of these alien characters because you may not be able to go everywhere and if you treat this as your second character your secondary character that doesn't have to go on every adventure you you have your main character you're playing all the time and he goes on every adventure for the most part you could have your secondary character who who does have an opportunity to go on some adventures um and you could play one of these alien characters like imagine if you had a demixie as your as your secondary character and when he's not on the adventure with you, he's back at the base working on something, or, or whatever. It's not really that important, but it would give you an opportunity to play one of these creatures.
2: I think it's an excellent way to really bring some freshness to your campaign. Called the troop style play, is the
4: term for that. And yeah, it's a good idea.
2: The whole Mission Impossible kind of large pool of operatives that you could pull in.
3: Do 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 do.
2: Right. Uh,
3: What's the matter? I can't go on this one? (laughs) Just because I don't fight? No, it's because you're smarter than to go through a portal.
4: (laughs) Not stupid, not expendable, not
2: going. And neither am I. So you can see that playing a member of the Alien Corps can really bring a freshness to your campaign. It also provides wonderful opportunities for people to think outside the box. Bad voices. Yes, as as far as uh, characterizations and motivations, and it allows you to have adventures on Earth because to members of the Alien Corps, Earth Prime is an alien planet. Please explain once more to us this Lady Gaga.
3: We're making a lot of light of this, and we've been having a lot of fun with this and joking and stuff, but... But that, thats the beauty of it, and I think that's uh, something that the, the aliens can bring like a uh, sort of a, a comedy to your game, but but a natural comedy, not something that you're just making up or faking it. You know, they will lead to their own funny situations. However, I don't think it takes away from anything because it can still be very serious and very dangerous the way you know the way Frenchworthy is naturally. But it can bring a natural uh, levity to the campaign.
2: Right, just the whole fish out of water is constantly to the forefront. Yes. Welcome to the Hardwired Hinterland section of the TriTac Systems Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we talk about this great game that Richard Tuholka has brought out just this past year. And we wanted to go over some of the things that we've discovered as we've been playing it and reading it and maybe giving you some great tips on how to enjoy this game or even start your own campaign in the game. And to lead us out, we got Jake.
4: Hi, everybody. My name is Jay, and tonight we're talking about Hardwired Hinterland. Hardwired Hinterlands is a game of pulp-era aviation adventure in a strange world where you're flying airplanes between different large islands with different environments on them, exploring, salvaging, and looting for fun and profit, encountering strange people, monsters, and relics of times that have gone by and haven't even occurred yet. It's uh, a strange setting. And good for all kinds of stuff.
3: So are we, uh, are we saying this is kind of like Fringeworthy meets Riffs kind of thing?
2: Well, it, in a sense, it is like Fringeworthy in that you every different island is essentially its own little world. Yes. It has more in common
4: with three other media properties. First is Tales of the Gold Monkey a uh, pulp-era kind of uh, in, inspired by Indiana Jones that, ha- that was aired in 1982. Yes, starring
0: uh, Stephen Collins, yes.
4: Right, an animated show called Tailspin, which was very similar in premise. With which characters aired back, from The Jungle Book, yes. It aired back in the 90s, and some added characters, too. Also, it seems to have some things in common, although I don't know how much, de- how much that, that is deliberate. It has things in common with Crimson Skies. Your characters generally are flying dirigibles and piston-driven airplanes to these strange new places to explore them and for fun and profit.
2: The game itself, you refer to it as Pulp Era, but Pulp is more of a style, I always thought. Okay, yes. I realize the picture on the cover has this guy wearing baggy pocketed suits and it looks like something straight out of a 1940s type thing, but Mm -hmm. the islands themselves are... Uh, populated by people from all different realms and each island seems to have its own aesthetic so you could go to an island where it's set in the 1920s in the sense that everybody who lives there is living in that kind of uh, technology. For some reason they seem to like it that way Pittsburgh is that way.
4: There's Also, New Old New York, which is a 1930s-era New York downtown. And these islands, I think, need a bit of description because they are 200 by 200-mile squares.
2: Right. Completely artificial. Obviously artificial. Uh,
4: Yes, and they are 200 miles separated from each other island by a deep ocean with monsters in it. Right. And so what you have effectively is every 200 miles, you have this square which is a different environment. Some are deserts, some are ice caps, some are temperate, and some have different kingdoms and things going on. And apparently some even have different laws of physics going on on them. So you can have magic in some places and strange things going on. That is the one that really got me, because this world seems to be some kind of flat plane that goes on and on without any visible end. Mm -hmm. How come it's light in the daytime with, with no sun coming up or going down? as handled by a layer of fluorescent neon
2: it's not fluorescent it's fusing helium we think about fusing hydrogen to make helium this thing is fusing helium to make something else
4: but the end effect of that is that it makes a sunlight like light from all over the sky from all directions right Mm -hmm. and that turns on and off every 12 hours approximately
1: if you go high enough up you actually start going back down again there's a copy of this 400 miles over your head I mean, where you are so there's an island 400 miles over your head in the same position
2: but it's not a copy of your particular uh, island it's a different island entirely it just uses the same layout yeah
4: so it, it may be that this thing wraps around at some point we don't know
0: also in the centers of the islands there are two very unique, very unnatural things. One of them is a helium vent. During the night, the vent discharges a steady stream of helium straight up. It's, the vents are high grade titanium pipes, a foot high, set in a granite circle. And there is a hardwired power point. It's AC power. It starts at 110 volts, which is house current US. It can go to megawatts. In this way, that
4: actually sort of, kind of, sounds like a a river world.
0: That was one of my noticings, too, as, as I read this.
4: So people find themselves transported from Earth or from some other place, and they land on one of these islands, and they begin to adopt into this new culture where they find jobs as technicians, engineers, or pilots, or explorers, or what have you exploring this strange new world where all the land masses are 200 by 200
2: mile islands. And this assumes that, that you arrived on New Akron, because you could arrive on any of the islands uh, that are in this world. But from the purposes of the way the game is designed, it really only makes sense for players' characters to arrive on New Akron, because there's a great advantage in doing that. They're set up to handle new people coming in, where the rest of of these uh, islands might just take you and shove you into an assembly line somewhere and say, you'll figure it
1: out sooner or later. Well, I think New Canada is probably along the same way. It's the home of Interpol.
4: It sounds like this is also a lot like Fringeworthy in that if a GM chooses, you can just move several squares off to one side or the other, and start building your own to suit yourself.
0: Funny you mentioned Fringeworthy, Jay. I looked through the Portals book, and the official connection mm-hmm. between Fringeworthy and the Hardwired hinterland—because we try to have Fringeworthy that keeps all the games of Tritac games together—is at positive one twenty-two, comma eight. That is where it's officially the fringe paths hook up to the hinterland.
1: Okay, alternate platform.
0: Yes, it's an all-platform, positive 122, portal number 8. Ah. Looked that wow. up this morning. I knew I'd seen it. I just had to go through all five of the, the various portal pages to look that up.
2: Can you tell which one of the uh, islands it actually matches up to?
0: No, it does not say, but then again, the portal books were written quite a while before this game came out. But it does say that there is an airfield called De Rocher's Field, and you will sooner or later come upon a tavern where everybody's friendly. That's all the information that is given in the little blurb.
2: Well, DeRocher's Field will probably be a good clue.
4: I'm thinking that might be Noonan Field on New Akron, because there's the uh, old, the hull of the DC-3 called the Farm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. In any case, uh, what this setting has is that you get to explore strange new world by piston-driven aircraft, by warbirds. You get to fly and adventure and dogfight air pirates and race uh, evil archaeologists to ancient artifacts and do all this pulp stuff, all this two-fisted pulp stuff, which is a lot of fun for players and their characters to do.
2: And since each of these islands are essentially almost a different world each, then you don't have to worry about running out of adventure anytime soon. I mean, the next island's only 200 miles away. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Well, hey, let me ask you this. You're saying... Fly around in a piston driven aircraft and you're going all these different worlds. So, could you conceivably go to a future world and get a space plane? Yes, you could. You don't have to drive around in a piston.
2: It's very clear from the way the game is designed that the sweet spot in the game is for you to be a pilot. Okay. uh, Or at least be part of a crew of a plane that's flying around doing something. Many. Possible things you could be doing, but you're in a plane. So it comes down to what are the planes that are available. Well, it turns out that on New Akron, they happen to have a, a plane graveyard that has between 30,000 and 50,000 DC 3s. So it's pretty likely that most people are going to be flying around in a DC 3.
4: That sweet spot of you're in an airplane flying around doing something, that harkens back to Tales from the Gold Monkey or uh, Tailspin. Right, Where your characters are, where the, the PCs of those TV shows are pilots who are having adventures doing things.
1: The only problem with future space planes, if they use future space plane fuel, you can burn it all off and then it's all gone. And you ain't going to get no more.
2: There's a huge issue about maintaining your plane. So
3: one of the reasons why you might want to fly around in one of those is the fact that there are a bazillion parts for that plane and there's fuel for it everywhere.
2: Yes, exactly.
3: Whereas if you're flying around in some kind of spacecraft and or space plane or whatever, and, and you break some kind of high technical part on it, that's it.
0: Right. Well, Also, something I noticed, because there's certain worlds where, like you have, uh, let's see what they call it, Island 10, magic cost, where it's 20th century Earth, but there's all sorts of magics. The magic may not work there all the time. You may have also other certain worlds where technology above a certain level may not work. You may be flying in that fancy space plane, and all of a sudden you go over an environ, what these islands are called, and you are now in a big metal rock because mm-hmm. whatever systems you ran mm-hmm. don't seem to work on this environ.
4: Well, a GM's going to have to really monitor what he adds to his game and what he doesn't in order to keep it from kind of spinning out of control. A thoughtless addition of technology or an addition of magic could change things pretty, pretty drastically. You're flying from New Akron or, or New Old New York in a piston-driven airplane, and you spot a nice new environ with like temples and gold Chinese and people and people running around, and you want to land on it. That's going to be really, really difficult if they don't have any runways. So uh, there is also dirigibles and lighter-than-aircraft. I think there's also a few helicopters uh, available so that you don't have to necessarily be dependent on a long, flat space.
2: Well, you don't actually need either of those. First of all, almost all of these islands have beaches. So you you already have a semi-flat area, and most of these kind of planes, like the DC-3s we were talking about, they they were Mm -hmm. designed to land on grass runways. So they don't Mm -hmm. need a whole lot. Secondly, because of the special mass negating devices that you can easily put into each one of your planes. What was that thing called? The lightning crystal. The lightning crystal. You can reduce the mass in your plane to the point where we figured out that the stall speed was around 20 miles an hour. You can literally put that thing mm. down almost anywhere. Now taking off means you need a nice long runway. But landing, you can land almost anywhere.
1: In fact, I ran a game and they needed to get uh, a witness to a courtroom in time. They're going, we can land this airfield over here, but then we got to go through all this thing and go past all these mobsters. And guys looked at the map and said, it's a DC 3, right? We're flying? Yeah. This intersection right here by the courthouse? Yeah. That's about the right size, isn't it? Yeah. So he brought his DC 3 in, and installed it right over the intersection, and dropped it right in, light as a feather.
4: <laughs> mm.
1: <laughs> now, getting it out is going to be a problem. <laughs>
4: this is one area where this uh, addition of technology. This addition of super futuristic technology adds to the feel of the game. They have this crystal, which when patched into an electricity source, neutralizes the mass of the vehicle it's attached to. So you charge it up, and then your vehicle loses mass, so you can perform impossible stunts and maneuvers without pulling the wings off or falling to a fiery doom. Right.
1: You have low-grade fuel. You have alcohol is your best fuel. And unfortunately, alcohol on an airplane is like nothing. But if you can reduce the weight of your aircraft to the point where it has the density of styrofoam, then alcohol in your engines will work and you can actually fly. That's part of the secret of the lightning crystals. They reduce the mass of the aircraft to the point where alcohol-powered engines can actually get off the ground and fly them. Okay. But it does mean you have aircraft with the density of styrofoam. A good headwind, you're going the wrong direction.
4: <sighs> hmm. Also, you can do impossible turns and, like I say, stunts and things that uh, yeah. you, you see in the movies but would never physically work.
2: Right, because you have a plane that's designed to be flown at a very a relatively high speed. It has to be flown at that speed in order to generate the required number of lift in its original configuration on Earth. So it has these big wide wings mm-hmm. which provide enormous amount of lift. Well, now you go and take away all that weight. And these wings are now providing enormous, I'm talking enormous amounts of lift now. So, yes, you could do those immelmans and those flip-overs and those impossible moves that you were talking about because you have these control surfaces, lifting surfaces, that are able to handle that sort of thing where a normal cargo plane would never be able to do that because of its own weight-to-lift ratios. Mm
4: -hmm. Flying sideways down canyons, flying between buildings, and there we get into a reference to 2012.
1: But you also can do them at speeds that you normally couldn't do with a regular aircraft, and I'm talking about 50 miles an hour.
4: Yeah, low and slow. So you could actually fly very slow and do things like uh, an air-to-air boarding action or swinging on ropes from plane to plane. It's
2: even possible for you to bail out of a plane at a low altitude and do a hit-and-tuck-and-roll and and come up without breaking your legs.
0: (laughs) Well, that's something good that you mentioned about um, injury. <clears throat> because the one weird thing in the hinterland is that few serious diseases other than fevers. Wounds don't infect. If they're stitched and clean, it'll heal in days. If a gunshot victim doesn't bleed out, they'll clot and begin to regenerate within an hour. Lost limbs regenerate months. Aging is severely retarded. There, there is an anti geriatric uh, aura or something in this place where. If you're 86 years old or more, you regenerate to what you were at age 45. Just people don't age at they the don't same age very fast. Cancer, birth defects, all that type of stuff disappears. The way you're going to die usually is either fire, gunshots, or some other type of severe trauma.
2: Misadventure.
4: I was also reading the part where it said some people suspect that this might be the better place—a sort of modern-day Valhalla. What is a beta? I read a beta talked about in the game, but I didn't really stumble across the explanation for who who or what a beta is.
2: A beta is actually a pair of identical twins. One of the characters that are used for illustration found a device in NORAM, which is a post-apocalyptic type world, pulled a switch, and these two identical beautiful brunettes came walking out. Each one has the name of beta.
4: Okay. Are they human? Are they uh, some sort of humanoid? Are they some sort of uh, android? What's going on with them? Do we know?
2: From my reading, they appear to be entirely human, but obviously of artificial origin. Okay. Sort of like super clones. Mm-hmm. Super as in how they were cloned, not that they have superpowers. Mm-hmm.
3: Let me, Are they actual sisters...
2: Well, they look identical, so that would if they are from the same genetic code, that would make them identical twins. So that would make them sisters.
3: Unless they're both just clones of another person.
2: That would still make them twins. Yeah, it would make them sisters and they would and they would also be twins. If, your clone is your brother.
4: Clones are considered your sibling. Now, I'm looking at the map for one of these uh, environs called Etawango.
1: Oh, I love Etawango. Welcome to Etawango, the island nation Oh, you come, you live, you drink, we'll steal your blind. John likes it because he can do that accent.
4: (laughs) Uh, And who wouldn't, really? All right, there's Etiwongo Prime, Paco, Busunga. Now, it seems like they are in this kind of lagoon, and then the rest of the environment is a square around it. So you get a square shape with a kind of inland sea. Mm Yeah. And then islands in the inland sea. So it's sort of a tropical freshwater lake with a archipelago Mm -hmm. in
2: it
0: yeah,
4: filled with adventures and air pirates and And, uh
2: not particularly nice natives though they act that way when they speak to you
4: yes okay so that 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 is a place of adventure oh
2: yeah oh yeah so of course you you want to stick something important somewhere in there that you have to go through all these people and things to get to it the game is not designed actually to be played or humor, though certainly you can have humor in it. For example, we have, a la Oz, we have intelligent-speaking animals who are referred to as animals with a capital A. And one of the scenarios, which I think, John, you were making an uh, oblique reference to, involves taking an intelligent pig to court so he can swear out evidence against a major crime boss.
1: Yeah, right. <coughs> and yeah, so do it and kill the guy.
2: <coughs> so we have all kinds of intelligent animals Yeah, not just intelligent monkeys who love to be part of your crew, by the way. So we have this really strange, animal-morphic mix with humans and all kinds of other things, which makes this place a very exotic place to be. And you can pretty much pick the uh, island of your taste to center your adventures around, or at least as your home port. After you get uh, your wings over there at New Akron, they have a good flight school. You can learn how to be a pilot, and then you go down and either go to a card game and win yourself a plane, or <laughs> you, you go down and try to uh, fight off the wild men long enough for you to salvage a plane out of the, the plane graveyard.
4: I got it. I'm going to take the plane. What's your encumbrance rating?
2: Uh oh. Is the lightning crystal on? It's nothing. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Oh, Okay, so does it negate the weight or the entire mass? So are you still dealing with inertia? On the moon, you have to be careful when you're walking because if you're going too fast to try to stop quickly, you'll fall over because your inertia isn't different. Are you going to have to really tug and pull on this plane to get it moving?
1: If if the lightning crystal is turned on, its mass will decrease to the point where, yeah, you can pick up with one hand. So in other words, Jay, as you were saying, the
2: mass goes down so you can pick up this thing and push it around. The main thing you're dealing with is air resistance. It's not weight. It's not momentum. It's not an inertia.
4: So you have a 20-pound DC-3. I think my head just exploded again.
1: Uh No, actually, if you get it on 20 pounds, it'll float away. At that point, it's actually lighter than air.
0: Yeah, because usually, I I got the stats here for the DC-3 on page 61. Empty weight, 16,800
2: pounds. That's without the lightning crystal being activated. Right. See, the lightning crystal, in order for it to work... Uh, You actually have to be in the air because if you're touching the ground, Ah. it discharges and it doesn't work. So you actually have to be able to take this thing off or you have to have some kind of very clever device to kind of bounce you in the air long enough for the lightning crystal to negate your weight and then Hmm. take off at that point.
4: It also talks about DC-3s being in various conditions in the graveyard. So I can't imagine how you're going to salvage a DC-3 except by over-muscling the the creatures who inhabit the area Mm -hmm. and taking it by main force. I mean, you're going to have to arrange trailers and and all sorts of infrastructure to get in and get your plane.
2: You may end up having to salvage three or four useless planes for parts before you can actually get to one that actually is worth salvaging for yourself to use as a real plane.
4: I'm sure there are salvage operations going that pull planes that sell them on the market.
2: That's one of the things they do down there. You can go down there and join up with that particular organization, put your labor in, and get paid either in parts or in, I guess, the opportunity to get your own plane, or in in real new Akron dollars. I'm sure you can make all kinds of deals, but that would be a good opportunity if you hadn't already formed a party at that point to meet up with people who were like-minded, they all wanted a plane, And so you can get together and and together pool your resources and get one of those planes perhaps a little quicker. Because, you know, if three or four people are all trying to get parts for planes, you might find that you're mostly on the way to a plane rather than being like one-eighth of the way to a plane.
1: Uh, One important thing to to mention about a Hardware Hinderland is that it's a systemless setting. There are some rules to it, but basically they're, they're rules for the world, not for, not for a role-playing game. It's meant to be tacked on to any role-playing system out there. Savage Worlds, D20, Fate, whoever you want to stick it on to, you can stick it on there and use it and run it.
0: Oh, and I see Herbs. the mix-ups you can do with D20 having read this. I'm seeing you can throw <laughs> any D20 type of stuff into this. Oh, yeah. yeah, Big old yep. mix bowl here, folks. Yep
2: it's really a setting and a concept and a game it is a role playing game it just doesn't tell you how you have to resolve your situations more right. fluff text than crunch text yeah yeah no almost no crunch text is the idea
3: so in other words there there absolutely is no system you're really you're going to have to have a system that you tack this onto
2: there's what they refer to as the d0 system which is in order to, for you to describe a, a world, you have to have some kind of metric, and so where it's necessary, they will use words like "really hard," "really strong," and then you can translate right. that into you know whatever you need to. But otherwise, they try to draw with on real world and analogies to say this weighs so many pounds, uh, you know this this has so many volts. Joe Janeiro flies again.
3: Yep. <laughs> Don't public. So, are there, there are no rules for making up characters?
2: No, it's assumed that you have made up your character, or at least uh, a partial character, before you start, because you're this guy who's driving down the road, climbing up the wall of a cave, and suddenly slips and falls and finds yourself slamming into the beach, instead of into I... the bottom of the cave. Or the point is, is that you are finding yourself there unexpectedly.
4: I'm assuming that a GM who, who decides to run this this setting, to use this for his game, has an idea of which system he'd like to use and how to uh, begin making characters in it. He's not going to just flop open the book and say, hey, let's play, wait a minute.
2: Not unless he's entirely into Diceless.
4: For a GM who could tap dance at supersonic speeds, could be doable. I would prefer to think it through what I was doing and, and grab an idea for a system first.
1: When I ran a game, I used Savage Worlds, and I was able to make some characters based on the uh, descriptions. Some of them would be listed with a high strength. D eight would be actually be a high strength in Savage World. They may not balance. If you have a point based system, they will be. They'll have an odd number of points spent to make them. D twenty. Well, there's no problem. a hey, high strength. He's got a fifteen strength.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, GMs who have have worked with their system for a while should be able to easily uptake uh, Hardwired Hinterlands and and turn it into a uh, setting for them to use.
2: Uh, Why don't each one of us say what it is we like the most about the game to encourage our listeners to go out and get themselves into this game?
0: Hardwired Hinterlands is a game where anywhere, anyone, anyone can be. Your old life is ripped from you, and you come here to this new place, clean slate. You have a new start. You can explore all sorts of places and hopefully make a name for yourself, usually as a part of a airship crew, either plane or dirigible or whatever. Surprises are just 200 miles away.
3: I like the fact that it's systemless, because that means that anyone who's already playing a game can try this out. They can even test play it to see if they w- if, if it's something they want to do, and they don't have to make up new characters or, or really learn a whole lot. They just have to read the book for a system and come up with some ideas for adventures. And, and you can even do that over a really short period of time. A guy could buy the book one night, read through it, get a good idea of what's going on, and the next day run the characters that the people were already playing in their game session. Um, I, I, like, I like the fact that you can you can play with any system.
1: John? I like it because it it does have this unique patchwork of different places and different cultures. Great place to adventure because there's so many different things that are going on there that you can do.
2: Bruce? Okay. Uh, This is a game where you can pick whatever genre you want. And if you get tired of that genre, you can change to another genre. Because each one of these environs, not only does it have a a different environment, which is why they're called that, but it also has a different culture. So if you want your adventures to be around uh, a Chinese culture, there's an environment like that. If you want it to be uh, ancient mythology, you can have, find one like that. Futuristic, as you know, say, there's Noran. Magic and, um, and the whole chivalrous thing, you've got the air knights. Whatever you want to be in your game, it's there. You just have to pick it and make sure that your GM makes adventures that takes you to the places that really makes you sweat and and love you know as you as you go and do these things
4: what i really like action adventure two-fisted action swoopy planes exploring unknown worlds and battling air pirates swashbuckling adventure in the air it's great stuff
1: that was the hardwired hinterland Next time when we hear our host say
2: This is Bruce Sheffer
1: saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in.
3: And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words.
4: This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are gonna complicate it for you.
0: And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The Tri Tech Podcast is wholly owned by Tri Tech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook.